This year has been one for the ages. Frequently contrary to expectations, sometimes to all expectations. Surprise? Beautiful questions, hard questions. Some excellent advice for living. Artificial intelligence. Efforts toward creating more financial freedom. Crypto, still, and meme stocks. Selling without selling out, trying not to be wrong, building the life you want. The S&P 500 bouncing back up 20% for the year. I'll take that every year, please, maestro. And wondering whether character always wins. What a year. And I'm only just talking about this podcast. Movies have their Oscars. Television has its Emmys. Music has its Grammys and Broadway its Tonys. I'm not really sure what podcasts have, but the one podcast I know best. Anyway, and that's this podcast has its besties. You deserve it. We deserve it. The stars are back. Looking back at this year's work together, looking ahead to 2024, all tied up in a bow for you. Is this actually the best podcast ever? You're the besties of 2023, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. And welcome back to this possibly, yeah, the most special edition of Rule Breaker Investing this year. Is this, is this the best? That's a rhetorical question, but a highly ironic one since the purpose of this week's full stravaganza is to honor the best podcasts from Rule Breaker Investing in this year of 2023. So it would be pretty ironic if this were, you know, actually the best of all. Ahead, as the besties bring you every year, we have cameos from many of my best guests this year, reflecting back and looking forward. I've identified 10 of my favorite podcasts that we brought to you this year. These are not ordered. These are not ranked in any way, shape, or form. But looking back and thinking through the roster of the 50 podcasts we've done so far this year, I thought, you know, what are what are 10 that stand out to me, probably to you? And why not talk briefly about them and indeed have some voices return to share some reflections both about the year that was and the year that will be. Now, again, these are not ranked. And of the 40 podcasts that are not included here, well, I wouldn't want anybody to think that I didn't think they were really great too. I mean, I love all my children. We have an author from August returning to us this week, but does that mean he was better than the other authors in August? I don't think so. Each was spectacular, and this is a highly subjective process, but hey, you can only fit so much in the besties of 2023. And just like the Oscars and Emmys and Grammys and Tonys, in the end, you have to pick only one. Or here, only 10. And of course, a big reason for doing the besties every year is to encourage you, my dear listener, if you didn't hear all 10 of these podcasts, in fact, to go back and listen to any you may have missed. Now, before I get started, I want to mention next week's podcast, and that's the Market Cap Game Show. This edition is guaranteed to bring you some foolishness and a lot of holiday cheer. So get the wood in the fireplace, invite the in-laws over, time for warm cider, traditional or hard and light it up with us next week with the Market Cap Game Show Holiday Edition to help you close out the year. That's the second to last podcast of this year. But let me in particular also mention 
our last podcast of this year, two weeks from today, which is, of course, your mailbag. The reason I'm underlining that is because we're recording it early. We're recording it next week. That way, Rick and I can enjoy our holidays, and you can too, knowing that we're bringing you awesome podcasts to close the year, but we're doing them ahead of time, so we have extra time with family. And thus, if you would like to be featured on the year-end mailbag, you need to write us right away. We're recording next Monday, so we'll need to hear from you now or maybe right after finishing this week's podcast. So let me ask you, did I get it right with this year's Besties Picks? Did I overlook a gem? Did one of my all-star guests this week improve your life this year? And do you have a story for me? The email address is rbi at fool.com, rbi at fool.com. And of course, you can also tweet us at RBI Podcast. So to summarize, next week, the Market Cap Game Show, the week after the year-end mailbag, but we need to hear from you right away if you'd like to be considered for this mailbag. And now, ladies and gentlemen and fools everywhere, the red carpet has been rolled out. Good news. You are invited. We actually have a pair of seats for you. And we welcome you to this year's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast Besties, complete with our own theme music, chosen specially by my producer, Rick Engdahl. Rick, thank you for another great year. I know the process for selecting the theme music for our besties every year is is multi-layered and at times onerous, Rick. I mean, we know this is important. I know it's expensive and creatively challenging for you. One of the bigger challenges in the world of entertainment, really the besties theme music each year. Rick, can you briefly detail how that all came together this year and what do you have for us? Well, um, it will be very different from last year. I'm sure that the listeners will notice the differences as I am, uh, I've actually enhanced last year's music with higher bit rates and um, higher quality. <laughs> I've used a little AI to bring out the bass where it wasn't there before. And um yeah, so it's it's, it's going to be completely different. It's going to sound very different, much better than last year through all the technology that I've added. Thank you, AI. That is so 2023. So, Rick, it's the Besties 2023. Let's get it started. Bestie number one appeared on September 13th. It was entitled Happierness. That's right, Happierness with Arthur Brooks. Arthur had just published his book, co written with Oprah Winfrey, Build the Life You Want. And in our wide ranging 57 minute conversation, Arthur spoke to happiness not being, not being a feeling, but an outcome. He rocked Oprah's neologism, Happierness, which reminds us that the goal is not happiness but happy earnest, making ongoing progress toward true happiness, which mortals will never reach, and which includes, of course, our losses. And rule breaker investors will know this. You have to lose in order to win. In fact, Arthur said on the podcast, and I quote, the idea of emotional self-management is an awful lot like portfolio management. Well, I'm delighted to tell you now that Arthur is back for a cameo in celebration of this year's bestie, for happierness with Arthur Brooks. Arthur, welcome back 
to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you, David. It's good to see you again in, in, in 2023, getting ready for the holidays. Are you, have you been getting happier this fall? Have you been taking our advice? I, I think that I have. I really enjoyed your book. And you remember that The Motley Fool's purpose statement is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And in fact, that's what we're trying to do all the time. Now, it doesn't happen every day, right? And that's something that you were eloquent about. Right. Sometimes uh, sometimes we have down times, and that's why I'm speaking. The market, fortunately, Arthur, up in 2023. But I, to be human and to be real, and you've done a great job at being both of those over the course of your life, we need to make sure that we are acknowledging the whole self. Absolutely. And love is really what matters the most when we're talking about our money is simply to make sure that we're not distracted by other things such that we can focus on what really makes us much happier. And by the way, David, I just did some new research. I haven't published it yet. And I'm going to break the story here on for the Motley Fool crowd. I could about not be more excited about this. What? It's savings and debt and their relation to happiness is the way that this works out. Here's the bottom line. Don't borrow money. Well, it's not a hard and fast rule, but the whole point is I've been looking at the, the relationship of debt to unhappiness. It turns out that any kind of debt that you incur for your consumption is going to lower your happiness. The only kind of debt that you can occur that, that incur that doesn't lower your happiness is for your housing and for your education, and even that can go too far if it's impinging on your financial resources to live. Savings, on the other hand, what that does is it starts a positive upward cycle of happierness. You find that when people start to save, they get happier, and the happier they get, the more that they save. This is a really important thing to do. So start a brokerage account, get a good investment plan, get a great strategy, and get happier. What do you think about that, David? I love that. You've, of course, made me smile wide, and I know a lot of fellow fools listening are nodding their heads in appreciation and in agreement. And you know, it, uh, it, is, it, is, it makes sense, Arthur, that the, the two things we might encourage that on are both generative. At least that's what we expect them to be. Right. Houses generally go up over time. Our education uh, creates an economic engine for us that should compound its returns over time. But I am delighted to hear that. And of course, right. savings, I think that's the hardest thing for most people of all. That first true dollar saved when you're out of debt or out of bad double-digit credit card debt, that first dollar saved is much harder than investing well. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, it's it's actually a, a very empowering thing because when people for the first time, maybe as adults, they they defer their gratification in that particular way. It makes them feel so good about themselves. They respect themselves so much more. By the way, the two kinds of debt that bring your happiness down the most Sex. cars and credit cards, because both of those things are almost always for getting consumption right now and then paying later. And once you do that, it seems fun before you make the decision, but after you make the decision, it lowers your satisfaction a lot because you start to feel that that specter, that phantasm, that beast starting to chase you just the minute you run that credit card. I don't own one myself, but wouldn't pe people say the same thing about boats? I often hear the happiest day is the day that you bought your boat, the least happy day is the day after you. Do you have oh a boat? Oh, my goodness. Boats, that is the craziest transaction. Look, I know some people who really like their boats, but I know people who have $50, 60000000 million yachts, and, and they give instructions to their staff, please don't tell me how much money this is draining out of my family <laughs> fortune and my kids' inheritance. <laughs> Earlier this fall when we talked, Arthur, you mentioned that at HBS, Harvard Business School, in the spring, you're once again teaching your science of happiness class. You said back in September it was massively oversubscribed. I want you to update the numbers. I think still only 180 kids in the seats, but 
How many on the waiting list? And by the way, you said there was an illegal Zoom link that they thought you didn't know about. Have they figured that out yet? Yeah, that's the COVID link. And, you know, it turns out a lot of they tend to pass it around a little bit. You know, the kids who are at COVID, they can't actually come into the classroom. But, you know, when there's 135 people on the COVID link, that, that something's up. Highly suspicious. <laughs> Um, we don't, I don't know how big the waiting list is, but I know that the class is closed and is completely full and has been since, you know, a few minutes after the class opened. Not surprising there. And I know you're obviously writing towards something new. I think you've, um, given us a little bit of a taste of that, of some of the work and things that you're going toward in 2024, which is imminent. I'm curious, um, Arthur, do you have a wish or an interesting thought or a prediction about the year 2024? Yeah, I think that 2024 is going to be a very good year. I have a very, you know, I'm not an optimist. I'm hopeful, which means there's a lot that we can do. And there's a lot that we can do that it really starts with us. Um, but I also am in this way, kind of just making a prediction that 2024 is going to be a much better year for most Americans. I think we've kind of hit peak crazy in politics and in social activism. And I think that we're going to start, people are going to start saying, whoa, 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 let's put some adults in charge of this kind of thing. And, and, and I think that we're going to actually see the temperature fall a little bit. We're going to be rewarding the most outlandish characters a little bit less. So good times are coming. So let's celebrate those good times by making sure that we in our individual lives are making the right decisions as well. We're loving people. We're using things. We're not worshiping ourselves. By the way, that's the formula. The formula for unhappiness is use people, uh, uh, love things, and worship yourself. The right formula is use things, love people, and worship the divine. And if we can all, on that track, we can actually celebrate a better year in world events, I hope, with a better year at home. I think you just helped us all a little bit more toward happierness you definitely progressed my own little journey toward happiness. Thank you for that thought, Arthur. And I want to thank you again for the time that you spent with us on the podcast. I really loved our conversation on September 13th of this year. I'm not surprised because it was spawned by a great book. Really enjoyed that as well. We also talked about Love Your Enemies, another book by you that I really appreciate. So we, we thank you. Full Nation says thank you, Arthur Brooks. And before I let you go, thank you for this cameo. Any Brooks holiday traditions that, that we all might learn from? <laughs> you know, we really don't because we've been going back and forth between Spain and, you know, trying to corral our sure. adult, the whole thing. But our adult tradition is get as many people together as we possibly can and have a whole lot of love in our family the way that we do it. And that's what I recommend to everybody else, because the last thought is always the best thought, which is happiness is love. Thank you, David. And thanks to The Motley Fool for all the good you're doing for our country and for me personally. Oh, thank you, Arthur. Fool on, my friend. All right. Bestie number two honors the efforts put in by many different fools over the years to optimize and take to a new high level the market cap game show. And I'm going to call out the most recent one. The date was September 20th, and my guests that week were longtime fool contributors Bill Mann and Emily Flippin. Now, in a lot of ways, the 25th market cap game show over our history was special. First, we called it the Market Cap Game Show Silver Jubilee because, indeed, it was the quarter-century edition of the Market Cap Game Show. And over its 25 iterations, what an evolution. Starting with the show's OG original gangsta pioneer Matthew Argusinger from the earliest days, you'll hear me quizzing Matt, my longtime stock-picking sidekick, and on the market caps of public companies within our sphere of interest – 
you know, rule-breaking companies featured in Motley Fool Stock Advisor and Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Matt was pretty doggone good at the game, picking market caps more often than not within 20% of their actual value, even though he had a celebrated and hilarious tendency to get Etsy wrong each time. From Matt, we cast the net wider over time and brought in Aaron Bush and Emily Flippin, fools who had a great market cap sense of their own. And it was Aaron who broke the game by effectively memorizing, I think, market caps of hundreds of companies to the point that as he came on each game show, whichever ticker I flashed his way, not only was he within the prescribed 20%, but for many of them, he actually just knew it. He just nailed the market cap outright. Heady days. Aaron forced a change in the game, forcing me to shift to the head-to-head competition that we feature today in which two different fools compete with each other. And with you, from the outset, the game was designed for you to play along to see who can identify the tightest, most accurate market cap. Well, it was this 25th Silver Jubilee edition in September that clearly demonstrated the game has reached a new pinnacle I appreciate the messages from listeners saying, wow, between the modern day rule set of the game and Rick's sound effects, not necessarily in that order. Wow. The personalities and entertainment on display. Some of you, some of you wrote me that we've created something special. Now, Jeopardy, we're not, I mean, I actually think we're more interesting and important than Jeopardy, but I acknowledge they have a bigger audience, but thanks to longtime fools, Adam Nelson and Sam Stevens writing in from their respective remote perches. We have kept tweaking the rules a pinch here, a tuck there, and I think we finally reached a place where the Market Cap Game Show is a world beater. Clearly, a show deserving of greater carriage. Maybe one day we'll get our reruns, too, on the Game Show Network on cable TV. Well, maybe. But for now, thanking again our listeners who've helped hone this show. For now, we can simply... Enjoy the present day show, or if you will, the near future show, because as already mentioned, the newest and 26th edition of the Market Cap Game Show, heard quarterly only right here, will drop a week from now next Wednesday to help make you smarter and happier, richer, I I hope, but I probably can't promise that. So one week from today, December 20th, I don't know, are you driving somewhere or hanging baubles on a tree or brewing eggnog? Do you have family and friends around you? Well, I hope so, because the Market Cap Game Show Holiday Edition hits one week from today, Wednesday, December 20th. I hope you'll play along once again with friends and family. To close, our quarterly game show provides me four of my favorite podcasts every year, and the format has been fully realized, fully built out now as of the September 20th show. And that is enough to earn it. A bestie. And in the brief acceptance speech for this one, with the exit music already playing, well, let me make sure I thank Matt Argusinger, Aaron Bush, The Bryans, Emily Flippin, Adam Nelson, a veritable demigod still walking this earth, former Motley Fool summer intern and visionary Sam Stevens, so many other players over the years, present defending champion Bill Mann, and most of all, Rick, who has produced, I think, every one of them. Rick Engdahl, the most underrated and unknown producer of a world-class game show, living today.
All right, on to bestie number three, speaking of games. Well, bestie number three appeared on November 1st, and it was entitled Wingspan, Designing a Blockbuster Game with Elizabeth Hargrave. Long talked about on this podcast, Wingspan and its expansions made regular appearances on my Games, Games, Games podcasts. I had certainly made mention of Elizabeth each time, but had yet to meet her in person or get to talk games with her. And that's exactly what we all got to do on November 1st, as Elizabeth graciously shared her time and her story of inventing one of the best-loved tabletop board games in recent memory. Well, it turns out Elizabeth had started work on the game a decade ago, and like most designers, quietly and persistently iterated over years to reach the level of today's masterpiece. She also mentioned some of the ups and downs of the business itself. For instance, a big article about her appearing in the New York Times at a point in time where the game had fully sold out of stores and needed to be restocked. In fact, reflecting back now on our conversation of six weeks ago, I particularly recommend this podcast for its business insights. Yes, of course, it's about one of my favorite topics, games and game designers, but Elizabeth gives us an often backstage, behind-the-curtain view of Kickstarter, of prototyping. Her first draft was printed on a bunch of pieces of cardstock, handwritten in pencil, with clip art birds, and also a bit about how business and life work when your first big published game sells now nearly 2 million copies. When I asked her how financially rewarding this had been, somewhat rewarding, rewarding, or extremely rewarding, she simply said, life-changing. Well, I'm delighted to tell you now that Elizabeth is back for a cameo in celebration of this year's bestie for Wingspan, designing a blockbuster game with Elizabeth Hargrave from November 1st. Elizabeth, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Hello. Thanks for having me back. I know you've been out on the road, perhaps especially in order to support a new game launcher, two of your own. You told me last week your voice was shot. It sounds, it sounds mostly better now. Mostly better. Mostly better. Yeah. There's a big game convention in Philadelphia at the beginning of uh, December that I was at. And so it's a big, you know, loud convention hall with hundreds of different publishers there showing their stuff off. And you got to you got to use your voice over the din. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that way about just a lot of restaurants around Washington, D.C. and other cities (laughs) these days. I increasingly find myself loving the ones that are rated well for being able to hear each other. That might be me in my late 50s at this point. But I do think that we live in a world where you have to shout a lot these days, whether it's at a bar or a game convention. I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) So remind us of the new game, Elizabeth. Talk about your most recent work. Yeah. So when I talked to you, um, Undergrove, I believe, was just about to go up on Kickstarter and it was up there for a month and just wrapped up. Uh, so we got 10,000 backers. We raised about 600 something thousand dollars. That is phenomenal. Yeah. And yeah. can you give us the couple of sentences take on Undergrove? I know we're talking mushrooms, but give us more than that. It is. It's a game that was inspired by the fact that mushrooms and trees um, connect up underground and actually trade resources. So you're playing from the point of view of a Douglas fir tree, and there's a shared set of mushrooms in the middle of the table that everyone's adding to, and you use those to get the resources you need to do things in the game. Okay, and for the gamers, Elizabeth, and a lot are listening right now, throw us a couple of the game mechanics. I think I can spy out one or two based on what you just said, but what mix of game mechanics does Undergrove feature? 
You know, we had a lot of trouble writing the the board game geek entry for this game <laughs> because we couldn't quite put our finger on what to call the game mechanics. There's definitely a lot of um, resource conversion, I would call it, in you know, Century Spice Road sort of feeling a little bit, although not quite the same mechanic yeah. at all as Century Spice Road. But you know, you're you're making your own carbon because you're a tree. You can photosynthesize and you're trading it off to the mushrooms and getting other stuff. And each mushroom trades in a different way. Um, but that's not like a label that you can put on the mechanics and board game geek. <laughs> so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's a little too wordy. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, but resource conversion is not that works. a mechanic. Resource management um, is a big, it's like it feels tight and there's a bit of a race to it because um, the the game end is not a fixed number of turns. Ah. It's like how many times um, people are um, absorbing carbon back up onto their seedlings for, for points. And so um, it can be a race to stay ahead on that track because that means that you've done more point scoring things than other people have. Right. And that's what ends the game. I like race games, whether they're actually with cars or with resources and nature. Right? And, and it's certainly out there. Arc Nova is another example, in, in effect, of a race game, even though you don't think of it that way as you're building out your yeah. zoo. So I get it. Well, speaking of getting it, let's pretend I'm listening and I missed the Kickstarter. Does this mean that I won't ever be able to buy Undergrove? When will this come out and will it hit retail? It will hit retail, I think, in the interim for a little while yet. Um Alderac will be taking late pledges. Late pledges. Yeah. If you look up the Kickstarter page for Undergrove. Great. Um, I'm sure you could do that. But yeah, it, it should be at retail sometime next fall in 2024. Awesome. All right. My two cameo questions, Elizabeth. I shared them with you ahead of time. I'm not going to say you've premeditated with brilliant answers. I'm not going to say that. The first one <laughs> that I'm asking my special guest. Yeah, the first one I'm asking my special <laughs> guest this week is any further reflections since now, albeit just six weeks later, I'd just be interested in what you've observed about the world. Maybe the gaming world we are moving toward the holidays, your experience on Kickstarter. Throw us a bone. Teach us something we didn't know six weeks ago. Oh, that's a good question. My premeditated thing was to say that the thing that has developed since we talked was the Kickstarter. Happened for <laughs> <undergrads>. <laughs> I got to think on the fly here. I've been thinking about my own personal reaction, like stress reaction to the whole process, right? Like I'm well established in this industry. People are going to be interested in my games for a while just because of the success that I've had. And yet, Every review cycle, not every single review, but the review cycle still like sets me off emotionally at a much higher level than one might expect. So in addition to Undergrowth coming out on Kickstarter, the, my game that was on Kickstarter last year is just now hitting retail um, and people are getting their copies from having back to the Kickstarter and so new reviews are starting to come out. And when that started happening, I was like all tied up in it again. And I need to just learn to relax because <laughs> it's all fine. Yeah. And that's the, <laughs> that's the Fox experiment, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. All right. So, you know, I really appreciate that because um, we do tend to look at people who are successful, whether they come from art, uh, from 
design from sport or from business, and we think, oh, yeah, they got it all together. They're probably bulletproof and invulnerable, and I wish I could be more like them. And yet, what we end up finding is more often than not, they're very human. And if we wish to be more like them, we wish to be more of our human selves, not some Teflon version of perfection. And so I really appreciate that that viewpoint, Elizabeth. I did see you uh, not just through private correspondence, nope, right out there, maybe Board Game Geek or elsewhere, talking about how you were surprisingly anxious about how your Kickstarter would be received. I think anybody who's ever created something for the public at large, at scale, has probably felt very similarly, uh, and yet not everybody voices it. So thank you. Thank you for that. And let me close by simply asking you, Elizabeth Hargrave, what's a wish, an interesting thought, or a prediction that you have for the year 2024? Um, I'm about to take six plus weeks off and my wish is to come back from that refreshed and ready to go creatively. I need a little downtime right now. (laughs) I can completely Um, understand. Do you feel like you're on the rails needing to come out with another game and another game? Is that how things work or not? Not too badly. I do feel some obligation to, I've said I want to do a wingspan expansion for every continent. And um, I got to keep on that. And th- and those, to me, don't like my brain on fire the way a new game would. So it's that feels more like just obligation to get it done. So I got to gotta work on the next Wingspan expansion and then figure out what's coming next. Africa, South America, or Antarctica? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. We'll leave it right there. Well, Elizabeth... Um, we wish you the very best of for R&R over the next six weeks. And by extension, I know you and I wish all of our listeners to find some of that time in 2024, that personal downtime that we need really to recharge. And uh, especially when you're operating at peak capacity in the prime of your life, which you are certainly right now as a designer, uh, that seems even more important to do. So thank you for modeling that for us. And thanks for the games. Thanks for playing. You bet. And thanks for the podcast and bestie number three, Elizabeth Hargrave. Bestie number four is a bit of a surprise, a bit, because it celebrates the dawn of a new episodic series for Rule Breaker Investing, which came to the internet airwaves on April 19th of this year, and it was entitled Surprise, Volume 1, Smoke and Mirrors. Two of the pillars at the foundation of this podcast have been storytelling and episodic series. Of storytelling, well, let's just say that nine years in, we, by which I mean I, my guests, my listeners on our mailbags, we have told a lot of stories. Humans love stories because they encode in us, in a catchy, memorable way, important lessons from history and life market history. We've had so many stock stories, but also life, you know, campfire stories. And of episodic series, I'd like to say we now have 25 of them. A bunch are centered on stories. I just mentioned a couple stock stories of which we've done eight volumes, eight episodes, and campfire stories of which we've done four. But telling their stories, financial horror stories with Robert Brokamp, these are some more of our story-based episodic series. But but what of the others? Well, as already mentioned, there's the quarterly market cap game show. There are great quotes 
17 of those podcasts. I was checking it, the first having been done this very week, eight years ago. Pet peeves, review of Palooza's essays from yesterday, games, games, games. But I don't invent a new series every week or even every quarter, sometimes just maybe one or two new ones in a year. And this year, it was surprise, where we went from the Emerald City to Booking.com to the surprise I had when first playing a board game with world-renowned designer Reiner Knizia to the 2004 Athens Olympics, closing it all out with a kid's birthday party. More than anything, I think surprise reminds us not to take anything for granted, especially in dark times, not to get too down on our fortunes or not to overrate or build up in our minds too much the forces that countervail us. Often, they're a lot less imposing or threatening than we might have thought, because sometimes it really is just smoke and mirrors. And when it is, we're often ourselves responsible for generating some of that smoke or for not recognizing these are just mirrors. Bestie number four to a fun, a surprising new series debut, April 19th. Surprise. Next up, bestie number five. You know, authors in August every year is both a challenge and a delight. It's a challenge because I have to read a whole book before doing an interview. Most weeks on Rule Breaker Investing are uh, nothing like that. And because it's a whole month of author interviews, I have to read several books. Not only that, but I read several more books than that every year. I'm a slow reader, but I do read. I need to pick my favorites. And so it's actually quite a lot of homework when you think about it to mount up our Authors in August series every year. And yet, as I said, it's a delight. Fully to read a truly excellent book is a pleasure and a privilege, and far more excellent books come out every year than I can possibly read. This August, we featured authors who'd walked, yes, walked from Washington, D.C. to New York City, who coached you, especially if you're an entrepreneur, on how to think about selling your business one day without selling out. And yes, we discussed a best-selling novel set decades ago on the Lincoln Highway. And, oh yes, and one of our authors in August, went with the bold title, How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking, written in 2014 by Jordan Ellenberg. I finally, nine years later in 2023, tracked down, read, and so enjoyed the book that I made a new friend this year, and I hope you did too, mathematician Jordan Ellenberg. Do you have a friend who's a mathematician? I can fairly say until Jordan joined me for Authors in August that I, I did not. But thanks to the platform that this podcast gives us to connect with exemplary people who make the world smarter, happier, and richer, thanks to the platform of Rule Breaker Investing, we can now say we have a mathematician friend. So this was a bestie because Jordan isn't just a world-class mathematician and probably the smartest person I've ever connected with on this podcast. He's also a talented writer. And I think he taught a writing class at Wisconsin this fall, but Forget all that. I think it was the baseball stats geek in him that won this bestie as we share an affinity for sports analytics, even if one of us is far more capable than the other at thinking through the math of it all. And I'm delighted that Jordan Ellenberg is back for a cameo in celebration of this year's bestie for authors in August, How Not to Be Wrong. Jordan, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's great to be back on. How did your first ever writing class go in Madison and 
Jordan, what did you learn? Um, I learned that college freshmen are much more equipped to like think about writing on a word by word, sentence by level, sentence by sentence level than I had been led to believe. So it was a real success. What I was doing with them is I was workshop, we were workshopping, the class was called Writing and Data, and we were working on, well, the kind of thing that I write, like sort of pieces for a general audience that are short, you know, a thousand words or so, like the length of a newspaper column, but that have like real engagement with quantitative questions and quantitative arguments. Um, that is, there's no such thing as like a training program for writing stuff like that. I kind of had to like fumble along and sort of like figure out how to do it. Um, and it was really fun working with these students. I mean, I will say this, I let the kids choose their own topics. We got a lot of sports analytics. So since you like, you, you would have had a great time. And that's actually a great learning moment because writing about that stuff, I mean, it's a, it's a broad and diverse group of students. So one kid would be writing about wins above replacement, like what it is. Is it war is overrated? That was the title of his piece. Great piece. Um, but that piece has got to read for kids who have never seen a baseball game, who don't know who the shortstop is, stuff like that. So that's a really interesting challenge. It's pretty different from students who are writing a paper for a class about a book and they know that their reader, the, the professor, has read the book, right? Writing for people who may not know the technical details of what you're talking about, but you want to convey something anyway, that's a special kind of challenge. And it was like pretty fun. I mean, this is the first time I've ever done it. I'm going to do it again next fall. I'm still sort of figuring out how to do it. But it was, it was such a joy to be with like a small group of 18, 19 year olds. I mean, that's, you know, that's why we teach college to do that. That's great. And they're so fortunate to have you. And Jordan, are you tough on the grades with the kids? When, and when is this airing? Is this going to air after they get their grades or before? <laughs> this is going to air tomorrow because we're taping on Tuesday, December 12th. And this is going to come out about 24 hours from now. Okay, then I'm not going to disclose anything about their grades because they're not going <laughs> to know them yet. Just Darn, in case I, they listen to your podcast. <laughs> I gave the wrong answer. I should have lied. Jordan, any further reflections since on that podcast that we did together? The historical record will show it was August 16th of this year. Well, you know, thinking back on why it was so fun, um, and this is sort of ties in with what I was saying about the students' writing, is that um, one of the most productive ways for me to think about what it is I really want to say and like what's in the book, even though I already wrote the book, I still think about the ideas in it, is when you see those ideas bounce off somebody like you who's in like a totally different sphere. I mean, I spend a lot of my time, as you can imagine, sitting up here in the math department where I'm sitting right now talking to other mathematicians. Um, but part of this project of what I call outward facing mathematics is talking to other people and then actually listening, like seeing how those ideas looked, look when filtered through another mind with another set of assumptions, another set of values. Um, and I just have a great time whenever I do that. And I certainly felt like I did that with you. Well, thank you. You did do that with me and you do that through your writing. It's very evident in your book and other articles and columns that you've written writing for a general audience when you could certainly make your entire career dedicated to just writing for other high, high mathematicians. And yet you have right. for an audience of literally dozens of people. <laughs> it's an incredible. So I guess the math of it does suggest that wider audience, more influence, maybe bigger dollars. I think you're making the right mathematical call with these, this well, democratizing this choice. You know, what, you know what happened this week? I was on a TikTok talking about the number of holes in a straw that was watched 9 million times. <laughs> so I added it up in those 84 seconds times 9 million. That's much more than the total amount of time I've been in the classroom in my entire career. So, so I, uh, I, I'm not on TikTok. Could you summarize briefly what happens in that video? 
basically I talk about this, and there's a whole chapter about this in my new book, Shape, which in which I go through it at painful length. But uh, this question of does a straw have one hole or two is a perennial topic of heated discussion. And yet it also like ties in with some of the deepest ideas in the field of math called topology. And it's like a beautiful introduction to that subject. In 84 seconds, I can't do much, to be honest. But I think you just got some more views as a consequence <laughs> of that plug, that conversation. That's really cool, Jordan. Well, let me close by asking you, what's a wish that you have for all of us or an interesting thought or a prediction that you have for the year 2024? You know, I think one thought I have is somebody who, who works and teaches in a college and everybody's like thinking about AI, but a lot of people are thinking about it as it affects people's work. Certainly in college, people are like, how is this going to affect the work that students turn in for their classes? Um, I actually think we're probably underthinking about how it affects people's social lives. I was talking to a group of students about this. And, you know, what I told them, I think is really true. I said, I'm not so worried about using AI to write your papers for you. I'm more worried about it substituting for your friends. I think wow. it'll be very interesting to see. I think that I think the systems we have are actually probably more ready to do a lot of substitution in people's social lives than they are to do a lot of substitution in people's work lives. And that's something we got to think seriously about the implications of especially for young people. I really appreciate that. I, I think part of, well, ChatGPT, of course, the best known of these, most used, I think, of these, is is very affable and polite, but it's social. It's a conversation. It substitutes for having a, had a conversation perhaps with somebody else. Well, it does and it doesn't. That's the problem. Like any substitute, right? Like a, like a nutritional substitute, it, it, it both does and doesn't, and we have to figure out exactly what it can and cannot substitute for. Did you ever see the movie Her? I did. You know, I wasn't thinking of it, but now that you mention it, uh, yeah, a very relevant. In a near future, a lonely writer develops an unlikely relationship with an operating system designed to meet his every need. I have to admit, I missed that Spike Jones-directed movie. Would you recommend that to us or not? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw it when it came out, so I don't remember it that well, but I remember really liking it. Yeah, it seems relevant to what you are just saying. Well, Jordan Ellenberg, I really enjoyed getting to know you in 2023. Thank you so much for gracing us once again with your presence on this podcast. I look forward to future association. We all are saying, boy!" clapping you forward on the work that you're doing, both at U Wisconsin, working with students, but of course you're publishing. Uh, what's on tap? What are you writing right now? Oh, what am I? Honestly, right now, I'm totally writing the kind of heavy theoretical stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm clearing all the backlogs that I didn't write while I was writing a book in public. <laughs> okay, good. Sounds like 2024 is going to be a deep year. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Jordan. Fool on, my friend. Thanks, David. Bestie number six was an easy pick. 2023 was the year that artificial intelligence broke out into the mainstream. Did you notice? Its protagonist was clearly ChatGPT, the large language model developed and unleashed by OpenAI. Listen back to my besties 2022, and you'll hear author and bright light Dan Pink explicitly call out 2023 as the year that artificial intelligence and ChatGPT would hit the mainstream. In Dan's words, and I quote, I am convinced that in 2023, the world of generative AI, a world of AI that is actually creating things, not finding things, not finding answers that already exist, but truly creating things that have never been created, Dan went on, I think that's a big deal. And I think this is the year that it's really going to crest. And all the jabbering about the metaverse or about crypto is going to seem 
pale in comparison, Dan Pink said, to the effect that generative AI is going to have on how we work and how we live. End quote. Again, I think Dan called it, as usual, the AIs, as Wired founder Kevin Kelly would have it, reminding us that there's not only one AI or artificial intelligence, there are numerous, in fact, thousands, going into millions of AIs. The AIs were, to me, the headliner of this year of 2023. It begins. And as long as our civilization is around, and I predict it far outlasts the conventional wisdoms take these days, as long as our civilization is around, artificial intelligence will be an integral contributor of value in just the same way as the internet has been and will be. And as I thought of people that I know who've dug much deeper than I into this soil, people who've spent weeks, not hours, thinking what this means and how to ensure it serves rather than serves up humanity, I thought of my good friend Mahan Tavakoli, who has dedicated many, many episodes of his own podcast, Partnering Leadership, to this very topic. Mahan joined me at Full HQ Studios on June 7th of this year to help us all think about artificial intelligence. And if you missed it, listen back, because that will be one of your more valuable hours spent in 2023, helping you prepare for 2033, 4353, and beyond. And that's why it was a bestie. Of all my podcasts this year, this one makes the short list for the value it provides in thinking about our future. You know, the future, which is all that really matters to your investments right now, to your career, to your life and its aspirations. You know, the future. And here in the present, I'm delighted to welcome back Mahan Tavakoli to celebrate the bestie for the Rule Breaker Investing June podcast, Unleashing AI's Power for Good. Mahan, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. David Gardner, my friend, it's a joy to be back with you. And after that Dan Pink comment, I thought that was a mic drop moment. You could have ended the episode <laughs> right then and there. What a beautiful way for Dan Pink to talk about the transformation that we were going to experience in 2023 and beyond. You never know what will be thrown down on a Besties episode and then referenced later, Mahan. Before I ask you my two stock questions about any further reflections you might have and your thoughts for 2024? Mahan, what, what's been happening with Sam Altman and OpenAI? And what's your take? David, it was a crazy weekend when Sam Altman was let go by the board. He didn't expect it. A lot of people read about it. Sam Altman was one of the founders and the CEO of OpenAI. The nonprofit board. It is a unique structure that the organization mm. has. Let Sam Altman go. And along with him, Greg Brockman, who was the chair of the board, also quit. Interestingly enough, most of the employees at OpenAI said they would quit if Sam wasn't brought back. And the board eventually had to give in because Sam had the relationships with Microsoft that was a big supporter of OpenAI and the support of all of the employees. So Sam Altman is back at OpenAI with more force and more power and more ability to shape the board as he guides OpenAI into the future. And you and I were talking offline beforehand, Mahan, and you were talking about the implications for organizational dynamics and organizational leadership. You are a Swiss army knife 
uh, you know a lot of things about a lot of different things. This is one of them that you're really an expert on. Mahan, what is your reflection on organizational behavior in light of what happened at OpenAI? I think this is another example, David, showing how the old mindsets of leadership are dying. And one of those mindsets is that power resides at the top. And while I do understand the structure of OpenAI board was slightly different, in reality, in many cases, boards have felt that they have the power to let go of a CEO. But in this instance, the power resided with the employees. Mm. So the power dynamics in organizations is shifting. Now, there are a lot of other lessons to be learned. Sam Altman could have done a better job aligning with the board ahead of time. There was friction. There wasn't alignment. There wasn't a communication. So OpenAI is going to pay as a result of that. However, even when you think about the fact that the board no longer has the power and also reflect on a lot of organizations where the CEOs don't just have the power, the employees have a lot more power. Power is much more distributed in our current age and will be even more so in the AI age. Excellent. And I vote for that. So thank you. I was curious your your opinion. Mahan, you follow this much more carefully than I do. This is obviously a big national story, not just a business story, but a national story has been over the last month. Had to ask you. So check. Thank you. Now, Mahan, any further reflections since that podcast we did together in June? What's been happening with AI? David, I am more convinced than even back in June that this transformation is for real. It is interesting that in June this past spring, I was still running into people, including CEOs of organizations, who would say, yes, I've played around with ChatGPT. writes a couple of cute poems, but I'm not sure how it's going to impact my business. I can tell you I no longer run into a single executive (laughs) who says that, and people are starting to see its transformation potential. So a couple of things. ChatGPT recently launched GPT-4. GPT-4.5 is in, uh, there are rumors of that being launched. But anyone who gets a chance to play with GPT-4 Now it can interact with images, voice, can do advanced data analysis. There are also customized GPTs that are available, which in essence are automatic agents that can carry out actions on your behalf. It is incredibly powerful. And this is only six months after we were talking about some of the basic functionality of ChatGPT being built on using language primarily. Now, anything you can think of, voice, images, it can understand, it can translate, and it can build on those. You know, I want to describe for you a brief interaction I had with ChatGPT yesterday. I talked to ChatGPT most days. Yesterday, I was like, (laughs) who said that famous line about, you know, 90% of success is just showing up? And ChatGPT very quickly, and that's one thing I appreciate about it, said, Woody Allen, Woody Allen said that great line about 90% of success is just showing up. Now, we've been counseled by Kevin Kelly, by Mahan Tabakoli, and others that this is not always correct. This is like your energetic intern, your, your agent, but not always right. So I decided just to double check it. So I asked ChatGPT in the very next line, I said, what is that famous Woody Allen line about showing up? And the response I got back was, Woody Allen said, 
80% of success is just showing up. So first of all, let me just say, it's a great line. I love that line. It's really true about investing, by the way. Dollar cost averaging is just showing up, and 80% of success in investing is just dollar cost averaging and not, not head faking yourself in and out of markets. But I found that I need still to ask ChatGPT back to fact check itself, and it turns out I was misfeeding it the 90% line when, in fact, it's, I think, Woody Allen said 80% of success is just showing up. The, the language has a lot of power, and you're absolutely right. Sometimes you can use ChatGPT to check ChatGPT's output by <laughs> itself. But what I've been most amazed with, David, is the fact that now it can interpret pictures and through those pictures guide you with directions. So, for example, I wanted to make a couple of adjustments on my bike. I like riding my bike with my brother. I am not very good at it. I took a picture and ChatGPT guided me on how to adjust a couple of elements, including part of the angle of the seat and reset the gears. All of it ChatGPT did based on the picture of my bike. So... Some of this is fun. Some of it is potential for organizations. You can take a screenshot of a website and ChatGPT can then tell you how that website can be written in a more appealing way, how it can be written differently, how the visuals can be done differently. Amazing. So it's not just written word anymore. It can use images. It can use language. It can use videos to help you understand and do things more effectively. And still such early days. What gains have been made in the six months since we last visited with each other, Mahan? And wow, 2024 going to be very interesting, which reminds me to ask you in closing, Mahan Tavakoli, what's a wish you have for all of us or an interesting thought or a prediction that you have for the year 2024? My wish is every single person listening to this, David, will spend at least half an hour a day for a week or two over the holidays asking questions from ChatGPT and getting a chance to learn how to work with it. Don't be happy with initial responses. Don't just look at one part of what you do. Play around with it. Think about your workflow. Think about what you spend most of your time doing at work and ask ChatGPT to guide you as an experienced mentor in that area of your job. The best way to learn AI is to use it. And one of the beautiful things is you don't need to know how to code. You don't need to know how to program. All you need to know is how to speak because now you don't <laughs> even need to know how to type. You can speak the commands because ChatGPT now understands voice. And I love the interpretation of pictures, something I haven't tried too much yet myself. And as you mentioned, 4.5 coming out maybe soon from OpenAI. And I think you told me offline earlier that it could blow things away from where just the status quo is today. Unleashing AI's power for good. I vote for that every day of the week. That was the podcast Mahan and I rocked on June 7th of this year. That was surely a bestie. You're one of my besties, Mahan. Thank you so much for being with us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you for having me. What a joy. 
All right, bestie number seven, lucky seven, connects with the seventh month of the year and began what I expect to be an annual tradition. The first week of the seventh month every year in the United States of America features, of course, our Independence Day, July 4th. And finally, in the ninth year of this podcast, I realized that it might just give us a good opportunity to focus on not just political independence, but financial independence. And not just here in the U.S., despite our holiday, but inviting in the whole world. One in four or so of our Rule Breaker Investing podcast community are located outside the U.S. For you, my dear 25%, Independence Day in the U.S. may only be of passing interest, but thinking about the universal and laudable goal of financial independence, financial freedom, well, that's something worth confronting. And confront it we did for our first ever episode of What You've Done to Create Financial Freedom. In that podcast, which came out on July 5th this year, I invited our foolish community to respond to a simple prompt. What have you done in the past year to create financial freedom for yourself and or for others? And if you like, how do you measure that? Well, that question unites the work of The Motley Fool with the work of The Motley Fool Foundation, a sub-theme that ran through the stories and insights about financial freedom that abounded throughout that podcast. Now, if you ever find yourself down on humanity or on your own finances, do yourself a favor and bookmark or refer back to our July 5th, 2023 Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. The themes and stories revolved around frugality, side hustles, finally starting and succeeding with your investing journey, even in the middle of your life, smarter moves we can all make, and of course, educating others. Because as pleasing as financial freedom truly is, it gets even more alluring when you can help create it for others. All of those themes were well represented in our July 5th podcast, and they weren't just themes. They were backed by human stories, true and authentic stories coming from your fellow fools to guide and inspire you and those connected to you to take a step, take steps toward financial freedom. When I think about it, that's really what The Motley Fool is all about. So a bestie to a podcast that educates, amuses, and enriches full of member stories from people like you and me who are getting it right. They may not be there yet, some are, but who are clearly helping light the path to financial freedom for the rest of us. I can't believe I waited till the ninth year of this podcast finally to figure out that that would be a good recurring Independence Week theme for Rule Breaker Investing, but we give that podcast a bestie in part to signal that will be an annual tradition. So as you take steps toward financial freedom in 2024, note them and maybe be prepared to share them with all of us the first week of July next year. On to bestie number eight. There were few conversations this year on podcast, online, or offline that I enjoyed more than February 15th when philosopher, and I will say game philosopher, Tien Wen brought his special brand of intensely thoughtful, interesting observations on the world at large to this podcast. I mean, on the face of it, 
T, a philosophy professor at the University of Utah and author of the book Games, Agency as Art, which, by the way, won the American Philosophical Association's 2021 Book Prize. On the face of it, T has a totally fun ability to discuss almost anything and have something interesting to say. We discussed Twitter and how scoring in social media changes social media. An example, I guess, of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which reminds us that the act of observing something, or here, scoring it, changes the very nature of the thing. Social media's underpinnings are one giant scoring system. Or take another game, Twister, that we discussed, an example of striving play. Now, I'm sure you, dear listener, have played Twister at least once, or or at least aware of it, and T pointed out that the fun part of Twister and some other games that he classifies under the rubric stupid games, drinking games come to mind here too, the fun part of stupid games is the failing. And that's what makes them fun, which is totally different from most other games. But it's only funny, I remember T saying, if people are trying. If you fall over on purpose in Twister, that is not funny, because what's funny is truly striving and then failing. And by the way, for more serious gamers, Galaxy Trucker is another example of a really fun, really challenging, stupid game. Well, philosophers make connections the rest of us otherwise wouldn't see. They reframe things and to have met a new friend who is so thoughtful about games. To be America's foremost philosopher about games, well, that'll float a podcast on Rule Breaker Investing, a bestie podcast, one that's worth going back and listening to yet again because there's always something more to see or hear. Well, really happy and honored to have T Nguyen back to celebrate that podcast we did together. Wait, actually, T, we did two because anybody can hear an extra of us both geeking out for 17 minutes on what our Mount Rushmore favorite games are. Anyway, really happy to have you back. It's great to be back. And T, let me ask you what Ralph Waldo Emerson would ask colleagues that he hadn't seen for a little while. T Nguyen, what has become clearer to you since we last met? Oh, yeah. So I've been thinking so much about the specific nature of counting in um, scoring systems and metrics. Did we talk about Lorraine Dastin at all when we were... uh... I don't think we did. Okay. So one of the things that has happened between the last time we talked and now is I spent a lot of time reading this Lorraine Dastin book on rules. And she explains that there are some different kinds of rules. So an old school kind of rule is something you'd call a rule as a principle. And that's like a general abstract principle to follow, but one that admits of a lot of exceptions, right? Like show, don't tell. There are exceptions to that all the time. Love it. And you need to use your expertise to tell when those exceptions are. And then we have a new thing that she calls algorithmic rules. And algorithmic rules are rules that are mechanical. And what she ends up saying is that what it means to be mechanical is to be defined so that anybody can follow it in the same way. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, like a computer, you know, just ones and zeros. Anything algorithmic is mechanical. Well, she actually says something super interesting. She says most people think or algorithmic rules show up um, – when you have mechanical computers, but she thinks it's actually earlier. She says in the history, you see algorithms arising when people try to cheapen labor and replace really highly trained mathematicians with a lot of expertise and judgment with cheaper people, mm. uh, with unskilled people that can follow something like a log- logarithmic table. So what it is to be mechanical is to be this easy to apply rule that anyone can follow. And one of the things I've been thinking about is what happens when you make 
your evaluation system, your scoring system, mechanical instead of based on something like judgment. And what that's going to do is refocus the kinds of things you pay attention to, to the kinds of things that can be mechanically measured. So I've been thinking a lot about this in the history of uh, skateboarding. So once upon a time, when skateboarding was informal, what people really cared about was uh, the coolness of tricks, the beauty of tricks. But notice that's really hard to measure mechanically. And when skateboarding shifts to ESPNX, right, they change because you need something like an objective measurement. And so they start focusing on height and number of flips. Mm. And I have this worry that we have a systematic tendency right now to shift towards more mechanical scoring rules and more mechanical evaluation procedures that's going to shift the kinds of things we care about towards what's easily countable in a low-skill way. I really want to discuss this further. We are not going to have nearly the time that I'd like to. So, T, this is a pre-invitation back to this podcast in 2024 because I'd love to go deeper there. Like, I think about video games. I think about Tony Hawk. Like, that's the closest a nerd like I ever got to skateboarding in any efficient, awesome manner. And it was a game and it was scored, right? And it used metrics to score virtual skateboarding in this case. So that's one thought. And then another I have is like mechanical can scale massively, whereas judgment-oriented, as you mentioned, principle-based stuff can't. And that's also very interesting. Yeah, this is this is the thing that is most interesting to me, which is the relationship between mechanical rules and scale and whether there's any way to scale up judgment at all mm. without introducing mechanical judgment. And I think we do have a model and it's a very contested model. And that model is our legal system, right? Our legal system doesn't involve fully mechanical rules. It inserts judges and juries. Uh, and so there's this actually this really interesting history of Such people arguing in the law about whether or not we should make our rules more mechanical and more precise in order to make them more fair. And other people saying, no, when you do that, you can actually miss what's morally important. And you always have to have some kind of squishy people in the middle. And that fight, I think, is becoming far more important in the age of algorithmic valuing. Really interesting. I have not heard of Lorraine Daston before. I'll I'm not going to read her stuff because I probably wouldn't understand all of it, but I'll at least skim and be <laughs> and be ready to discuss in 2024. T, thank you for sharing that. And also, in light of artificial intelligence, that seems so relevant and important, and I know you're thinking about that. And let's discuss that next year. But since we're still in this year, T Nguyen, let me ask you, what's a wish, an interesting thought, or a prediction that you have for 2024? Okay, it's right in line with what you were saying. I've been obsessively worrying about abuses of chat GPT along the lines of targeting algorithmic systems. And I mean, one way to put it is I think a lot of people are worried right now about like super intelligent AI taking over the world. And my current worry is uh, people using chat GPT and LLMs to create unlimited frictionless spam and fill everything with spam. And I think one thing, my worry is that LLMs oh right now God. are really bad at being smart, but they're really good at targeting optimizable algorithmic systems like Google search, like Amazon's rankings. So I'm currently, does that make sense? I mean, can you see the worry? Like the dumbing down of everything? Yeah, exactly. Spammerific future? Yeah. Wow. I think it's something to be aware of and guard against. And uh, I'm glad you're thinking about it, T, because I know one thing, you're ahead of the rest of us per usual. 
and your thinking is always so interesting to me. Thank you very much for for doing that podcast we did together earlier this year. It was easy to give that one a bestie, and I give it knowing that we're going to connect again in 2024. Do you have any holiday traditions around your family this time of year? Yeah. uh, After the stresses of previous Christmases, my spouse has declared no rules Christmas. (laughs) Um, And I sometimes combine no rules Christmas with my favorite uh, game, which is having people bring random ingredients and forcing me to drunkenly cook dinner from unexpected ingredients. So we might do that again. (laughs) That sounds amazing and very non-mechanical, if I may. All right. Well, Tinuan, thank you so much for joining with us once again. Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year. All right. On to bestie number nine. Well, let me introduce it by way of, of asking a few questions. So to you, my dear listener and fellow fool, I ask, Three questions. First, what if we could only understand the true value of a podcast by the questions it leaves unanswered in the minds of its listeners? Second, how might a podcast episode be so engaging that it makes listeners forget to check their phones? And third, in a world where every podcast claims to be life-changing, what does it really take for a podcast simply to improve someone's day instead. Well, discerning longtime listeners may recognize that I'm rocking a few whimsical, beautiful questions because Bestie Number 9 honors the science of questionology, our 2023 revisit with Warren Berger. Warren is the author of A More Beautiful Question and the Book of Beautiful Questions, among others. And as a self-proclaimed questionologist, he came to this podcast on March 14th of this year, which history will show, was Pi Day. Yep, 3.14. In fact, Warren pointed out on the podcast together that it was also Albert Einstein's birthday as well, and therefore, as he termed it, it was a questioning day. Well, what is a beautiful question? If you don't know the answer to that, I totally suggest you go back and listen to my two podcasts with Warren Berger, including this one that won a bestie. But after hitting you up with three questions earlier, I think you do deserve an answer. So as Warren defines it, a beautiful question is, and I quote, an ambitious yet actionable question that can begin to shift the way we perceive or think about something and that might serve as a catalyst to bring about change, end quote. But why am I quoting Warren Berger when I can reintroduce him in person again? Warren, thank you for joining me for the revisit earlier this year. And welcome back for, I guess, what is a re-revisit. Well, David, thank you so much. It's, it's really an honor to be uh, you know, chosen to be in this, in this, year-end, uh, this year-end podcast. And I'm glad thank to be you. here. Thank you. I mean, obviously, a lot of people dream of getting an Oscar or a Tony, a Grammy, if you will. Have you yet received any of those, Warren? No, but this the, I, th- I think of this as maybe the first step. Amazing. <laughs> the bestie is a stepladder to greatness. I hope it will prove such. Warren, I once asked you a meta question. I actually went back and checked the transcript for this exchange, so I'm not expecting you to remember it. This is not a quiz, but here's what I asked you. What's the beautiful question I should ask you about beautiful questions? Do you remember your answer? 
Uh, I think it was probably something like, how might I get myself to ask more of them? That's, that that's, the, exactly, cheap, that's the cheap question. <laughs> that is exactly the answer. How can we get ourselves to ask more of them? I really appreciate that you can rock that and bring that right back. Any further reflections since on that podcast we did together, Warren, or on the world at large? Well, you know, I've, uh, in the year that we've since we've talked, um, I would say I've shifted focus a little bit because I was working on a new edition of my book and there were new chapters in it about critical thinking and about using questioning to communicate and to connect with other people. So whereas uh, previously I've been very focused on how questioning, you know, a beautiful question can help you innovate and it can help you make better decisions and, and, uh, and you know, and come up with big ideas. And I still am really interested in that. You betcha. But, but then I kind of wanted to look at these other areas, which is, um, you know, which are uh, like, how do you, how does questioning inform the way you make uh, judgments about information that's coming at you? And, and, uh, you know, in this world we're in today, uh, uh, people are, have, are struggling with what do I believe? Uh, uh, what should I believe? Um, how do I, how do I arrive at judgments that are reasonable instead of, you know, overly emotional? So all of that to me comes under the heading of critical thinking. So I kind of really delved into that and, and critical thinking, as, as I discovered, is really all about the questions. It's about the questions you ask yourself about how you think, what you're thinking. Uh, are you considering other viewpoints? Are you what are your biases? How are you accounting for those? And so you really need to sort of train yourself to ask those questions. And so that was one of the things. And then the other area was. It is, you know, when I'm talking to someone else and maybe if it's someone who has a very different opinion, different worldview, uh, how can I use questions to make this conversation more productive so we don't end up at each other's throats? Mm. And uh, so those are the two areas, critical thinking and communication that I've kind of been thinking a lot about in the past year. And, uh, and you know, I've just concluded that it's not surprisingly for a questionologist to say this, but, you know, it's all about the questions. It's a that's going to be the key to uh, both critical thinking and having good conversations. Really appreciate that. You know, I remember years ago I had Nick Epley, who is an academic, works within the field of psychology. He wrote a book called MindWise. We might have talked about this on one of the two podcasts you've been with me on before because this one keeps popping up for me, Warren. But, you know, he asked, anytime you're in a difficult conversation with somebody with a very different view, a great question you can ask that person is, how did you arrive at the conclusion that you have. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that's a beautiful question. It's a beautiful question, and, and, and it's been proven to be effective. That's a, that question or a variation of that question has been used a number of times by facilitators and people trying to you know resolve conflicts, and it is amazingly effective. I've been asking other guests, Warren, my traditional question that looks ahead at 2024 and asks, you know, what's a wish, an interesting thought, or a prediction you have for 2024, but I think a more beautiful question for the questionologists joining us for our besties is, what are a few beautiful questions that you have as we get ready to embark upon 2024? Okay, so I've got three of them, all right? And awesome. um, the, the two of them relate to the fact that, you know, we're going into 2024, which is an election year. And so there is going to be a lot of heated uh, dialogue, and there's going to be a lot of information coming at us. So this goes back to those two areas I'm thinking about, critical thinking and then communicating. And so I have um, a couple of questions uh, in those areas. So here's question number one. 
you know, since critical thinking is about sort of being fair-minded and objective and, and considering other viewpoints. Yes, sir. The question we need to ask ourselves is, how might we endeavor to think in a fair-minded way, carefully considering evidence and differing viewpoints, while also trying to be conscious of our own biases? Now, that is a, uh, a, a mm. complicated question. That is a multi-part I think of that as a wicked question because it's got it's got all these parts to it, right? But what it's doing is it's trying to cobble together the def all the pieces of the definition of critical thinking into one question. So if you can uh, if you can answer that que question, you'll be a, you'll be a critical thinker. You'll be and a will true you critical. just will you just glibly read it out once more? I sure will. How might we endeavor to think in a fair-minded way, carefully considering evidence? and differing viewpoints while also trying to be conscious of our own biases. So you're hitting on the four or five things that constitute critical thinking, which is fair-mindedness, evidence, uh, you know, considering other viewpoints, and then thinking about your own biases. You bet. So Excellent. That's, that's question number one. Okay, now question number two relates to that idea of relating to people through questioning. Um, and I would say the, the question... Uh, to think of, particularly as we're going into this year of, you know, divisiveness and so forth, as you're encountering people with all different viewpoints, you should ask yourself, what if I replace judgment with curiosity? Mm. So that is the question that's going to help you have better conversations with people. If you can go into it saying, I'm going to hold back judgment and I'm going to lead with curiosity, it allows the other person to explain themselves more. Maybe it allows you to understand them a little better and it, it, it keeps you from getting into these instant arguments right away. It is it is great advice and what a wonderful, that infinite curiosity, that childlike curiosity, beginner's mind in some cases, and, and not faking it, but truly, right. no, real. I mean, you truly really should embodying trying, that. Yeah, you really should be uh, trying to go into these conversations saying, I want to learn. You know, I'm not going into this conversation to prove I'm right. I'm going into this conversation to try to learn something. Positive inquiry. I love that spirit. And I will say intellectual curiosity, something we've hired for at The Motley Fool for many years. Oh, yeah. These, these are my favorite people, people who are just so, Absolutely. so curious. They're so... We need, we need everyone to embrace that mindset, you know, and we're all capable of it. It's just, you know, it takes a little bit of um, putting the ego aside, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, But we are all capable of that. Okay, so I'll get to my last one. Now, this is on a different track. Um, this is all about, I figured 2024 is coming up. We've got New Year's resolutions coming our way, right? So yeah. my question to you that I think you should ask yourself is, what if I frame my New Year's resolution as a question? The reason to do that, this is not just a whimsical idea on my part as a questionologist, <laughs> but it is that there has actually been um, evidence, there have been studies that show if you want to get yourself to do something and you pose it to yourself as a question, it's more effective than posing it to yourself as a statement. So if, if I want to get myself to drink more water, it's going to be more effective if I ask myself, how might I get myself to drink more water? As opposed to saying, I am going to drink more water. You know, Love so it. we just are more receptive. Our brain is more receptive to questions. It's more likely to go to work on them and start trying to answer them. 
And so it's uh, it's just a good technique to use uh, in place of the uh, the New Year's resolution. That is an outstanding one, a great one to close on, Warren. What if I frame my New Year's resolution as a question? I'm going to use that one this year. Warren Berger, thank you so much for joining with us once again on Rule Breaker Investing. Congratulations on this bestie, and may it be a stepping stone to true greatness in future. It's only the beginning, David. I'm sure of it. Have a great uh, new year. And it's great talking to you again. Thank you. Full on. And bestie number 10. I had a rather naive question in mind in retrospect as I welcomed Ed Brooks to Rule Breaker Investing. The date was October 4th of this year and the title the value of character with Ed Brooks. My question was blunt. Does character always win? Ed began in his tactful way by explaining that academics don't like giving blunt answers. They love to they love to caveat. But then Ed clarified the question, didn't I mean good character, not just character? And wasn't I probably thinking of the long term as opposed to any and every near term context? Well, From there, Ed went on to explain cogently that short-term wins are fine, too. They can help create a momentum toward long-term winning, but a subtlety, character qualities that enable those long-term wins, virtues like, like generosity or justice or wisdom, these can even, invoking Aristotle here, can even help change the nature of what winning is. You might have thought you were just going for the rugby win, and you won. But then you discover that the win enables you to be magnanimous in victory, generous to your defeated foe, and become a noble example to fans on both sides. In this sense, Ed did agree, good character wins and indeed transforms what winning can mean. Now, if this all sounds like heady stuff, please know that most of the hour we spent in October with Ed Brooks was and is intensely practical, which is what you need to be. If you've designed and run the Oxford Character Project as it approaches its 10th year, I asked Ed what the project was, and he explains that in the podcast, and we might talk about that a little bit today. But then I asked him what the project was not, and he replied, and I quote, the Oxford Character Project is not about turning the clock back to some period of history when people were these ideal types, these people of good character who used to walk around always and everything was all good in the world. Ed said, that's never existed. It's not about telling people who they should be or placing burdens on individual students or any others. What it is about is helping people to become the best versions of themselves in all of the different domains of their life and to contribute to the good of society wherever they find themselves in the world, end quote. And I will say as an asterisk, in a little, in a much smaller way, that's kind of what this podcast is about as well. Well, with all that said, I'm delighted to welcome Ed Brooks back for a cameo in celebration of this year's Bestie for the value of character with Ed Brooks. Ed, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, thank you very much, David, for having me. Pleasure to be with you and to close out the Besties of this year as well. Really a delight. I'm getting to bookend the Brookses. Uh, This is a very special thing for 2023. Two new friends to this podcast and Ed, let me ask you, first of all, what are your holiday plans? Do you have a regular routine? I know you have younger kids, or is it different every year? We have a regular routine, so we'll be here at home in Oxford for Christmas itself, 
and then we'll spend a little bit of time traveling around the uh, the country to visit some family and spend New Year with friends. And when you say the country, do you mean out there in the rural country, country part, or do you mean different cities around the country? Um, into London and mostly around uh, the southeast, which is where our family over here in the UK live on both sides. Wonderful. A lot of us, many of us have listening have, of course, been to the UK. Some of us listening live in London, but I'm often reminded, or I need to remind myself, that about half of the population of the UK lives in or around London. Is that? I think that's still true. Yeah, that's right. London is um, an enormous city. Uh, it's a world city. It's the only one we have. And so yeah, many of our population live there. But England is such a, in the UK, Kingdom, such an, an amazing country, well beyond London as well. So much more to explore. Wonderful. Well, Ed, thinking back on that podcast we did together in October, any further reflections since? It wasn't so long ago, October 4th and now the middle of December, but any new developments or additional reflections? Well, David, one thing um, I think is a reflection listening back on our conversation was something we didn't talk about, which we, we might have done. So we didn't talk much about the importance of character in relation to the high tech world that we live within. So we live in this incredible world of AI, quantum computing, robotics, self-driving vehicles, gene editing, the list goes on, incredible new technologies. And we didn't think so much, we might talk now briefly about the importance of character in terms of what it means to live well in this technological world. And I would love for you to do that, Ed. You clearly have thought more about this than I have, even though I like to think of myself as steeped in technology. And I do check in with ChatGPT often more than once a day these days, which I was not saying one year ago. Ed, what are your recent reflections on character in a technology-driven world? So I think, David, is understanding what these technologies do, and they're incredible things because they extend our human powers and potential in some remarkable ways. Um, and they can um, help us to flourish in different aspects of our lives as well, to bring better health, to alleviate poverty, to help people communicate, to strengthen society, to bring joy. So many different technologies in so many different ways. But of course, um, we know from uh, these last few months as well, that every new technology also brings its questions and, uh, and concerns because, well, technologies extend power and potential. Uh, that power and potential has to be used and directed in a certain way. And this is where character comes in. So the importance of character is about the ability and the qualities we need in order to be able to use that technology well, to direct it towards good ends and to live well in relationship to it. So I guess think about even your smartphone. You know, it takes actually quite a lot of self-discipline to use your smartphone well and have a flourishing <laughs> life with, uh, uh, with your smartphone. <laughs> And the same is true across the across the board. So even um, you know other, other virtues um, that can help us to flourish in, in a world of, of technology directing it to, to good ends. Maybe we can think about justice, wisdom, um, charity here. Shannon Valor is a professor at the University of Edinburgh, and she talks about technological virtues, um, trying to get into a, a mindset thinking about the virtues we need to to live well in a technological age. And a thought might be as we think about then, well, what does this mean for us more practically? is to think about, yes, we need to grow in tech literacy, but moral literacy alongside that. So as well as we're thinking about the new technologies, the new dynamics, well, what are the aspects of ourselves that we're going to need to develop then and grow to use that technology well? You know, we need to build technology. We need to build technological virtues in our educational systems, organizational systems uh, alongside that. So that's something which I've been thinking about 
uh, a fair bit and every new technology always makes me consider these questions uh, some more as well. Really appreciate that, Ed. And we talked about artificial intelligence earlier in this Bestie show with Mahan Tavakoli. But just to peel back one more layer of the onion here in this context, Ed, you know, I think about civility. This is a very important thing, I think, in our world today. And we've seen some loss of it, I think, in the United States of America over the last 10 years or so, which is very frustrating for me. You know, one of my expectations or interactions with, in this case, ChatGPT. There are other AIs out there. There will be more coming, but the most common and best known today is that that voice of artificial intelligence, but intelligence indeed, is quite civil. It's quite respectful and polite. And as if we start using artificial intelligence as frequently and intimately as our smartphones in recent years, it makes me wonder whether Voices of civility and moderation might not be more of a normal part of the average person's experience than maybe we get today from shock jocks and crazy stuff on social media, et cetera. So that's a, maybe a positive thought. What do you think of that reflection on civility? Civility is essential. And in a world we can communicate to so many people and so quickly, it's easy to do that thoughtlessly or to do to communicate broadly in a way which we might actually previously have um, kind of kept ourselves in terms of private communications and to speak actually very broadly and in ways which are uncivil and, and cause uh, division, um, which is, is needless in, in many cases as well and doesn't achieve the kind of ends that we might, um, we might imagine. Um, certainly, I think it's a really interesting thought that identifying and uh, engaging with uh, chat uh, GPT and the way in which that's been educated to speak well, and that's been tra it's been trained in that way. Perhaps people have thought about what kind of speech is going to be good in this interaction. Well, maybe the stability that we see there could actually train us and educate us backwards. I think that's a really interesting thought. And yeah, practicing conversation with chat GPT, maybe there's something to be learned there. Something to think about or observe as we enter the new year. And let's close, Ed, by my asking you about this new year of 2024. Ed Brooks, what's a wish, an interesting thought, or a prediction that you have for the year ahead? Well, if I could give you an, an interesting thought with a, with a wish attached to it. So the interesting thought is from an Economist article I read a, a couple of months ago, that 2024 is set to be the year of elections, um, the biggest year um, election year in history around the world. So 76 countries going to the polls, and that's 4 billion people. It's said in the, uh, in the article, over half of the world's population. Of course, we know very well you know, in, in the US, I think here in the UK, it's not confirmed, but we're likely to have a general election um, as well, that presidential elections in Russia, Finland, um, well beyond um, a general election likely in India, certainly in Pakistan, South Africa. We're going to the polls. So there's the, there's the interesting thought, the biggest election year in history right around the world. And here's the wish that's attached to it. And the wish would be that we might turn a corner towards a renewed focus on character in public life and in public leadership, justice, integrity, honesty, service, moral courage, these kinds of qualities. They don't belong to the left or to the right. They're not attached to one color of one political party. They should belong to every political leader who takes high office. And it would be a wish that we would see more of that emphasis in the way in which uh, the discussion proceeds in the media, in the ways which we consider our responsibilities as an electorate, in the training programs we have, the political leaders, in those leaders themselves as they uh, present themselves and their ambitions to the electorate in the polls. Thank you for sharing that interesting thought. And Ed, thank you for sharing that wish, which I know is wished 
by many an ear hearing us right now. Well, Ed Brooks, thank you for the podcast that we did together in October. I look forward to continued association as we enter the year of 2024. Fool on, my friend, and Merry Christmas to you and a foolish new year. Merry Christmas to you and yours, David, and to uh, all of the listeners out there. Well, thank you again to every one of my special guests. Each of these men and women, in one way or another, is a hero of mine, maybe of yours too. And it's an honor to have them sit with us briefly here in Fulhalla near the end of another year. Thank you for 50 stellar weeks for this podcast for this year so far. Thank you, dear listeners. I had such fun and learned a lot, and I hope you did too. And that is the heart of the besties 2023 as always people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and the molly fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear learn more about rule breaker investing at rbi.fool.com